You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome everyone to Teller from Jerusalem, and I'm your host, Hanok Teller. Today's episode is devoted to making improvements via a method that has proven enduring. And the ground rule for everything on this series is that it must be practical. So we're going to try and focus on how we can increase and fortify our good habits and diminish our bad ones. The way to achieve this is not necessarily through goals, a little bit contrary to what we've been taught all our lives, not through goals, but through a system. Furthermore, what is required is action and not motion. It's very easy to get bogged down finding the optimal plan for a change, like what's the best diet and how's the best way I'm going to lose weight. And I get calls all the time about writing a book. And people ask me about strategy and what I should do. And I always answer the same thing. What you need to do is start writing. Once it's written, you can edit and you can polish. But up until then, it's just talk. Action is much more important than motion. We're so focused on trying to find the best approach, we don't get around to taking action. As Voltaire said very famously, the best is the enemy of good. There's a book which I think is new. I certainly read it and I, I recommend it called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And he talks about the difference between being in motion and taking action. And taking action. They sound similar, but there's a world of difference. When you're in motion, you're planning which is worthwhile. If you fail to plan, you fail to fail. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. I can't deny that. But it's not going to reduce it's not going to produce a result. Action is the type of behavior that produces results. And I would encourage to adopt the approach of Shammai, the great scholar, as it says in the Ethics of of our fathers, amor ma'at harbei. Say little and do much. Don't talk so much. What you need is action. If I plan out a book, not a single keystroke has been punched. If you look for a good diet, that's still motion. But if I eat a, ha- a healthy meal, uh, yeah, 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 that's action. So if you want to master a habit, and we're going to be discussing this, what you have to do is practice, not just plan. The key is repetition, but not perfection. And if you mess up, don't let your calloused conscience grabbed the driver's seat because you missed one time. The simple rule is, as James Clear explains very well, try not to miss twice. If you consume an entire pizza for supper, oy, can I relate to that? Then make sure that the next meal is a healthy one. If you miss a workout, see that you show up for the next one. Missing once is an accident. There's a rabbinic expression, ones rachmanapatre which translates an accident, God will forgive. Provided, of course, as an educator once said, it's an accident. Once it's accidents, then what you're doing is you're making a spiral of repeated mistakes and you get into that pattern. The distinguishing feature between winners and losers is that everyone can have a bad performance, a bad workout, or a bad day. But when successful people fail, they rebound quickly. Most people think, if, well, if I can't do it well, then I shouldn't do it. That's the advice of that calloused conscience. 
It's proof, again, of that assertion that best is the enemy of good. Lost days hurt you more than successful days help you. Because if you maintain a regimen at work, for example, even if it's a bad one, it will maintain the compound that you've accrued from the previous days. It's much easier, or let's say it's really easy to work out when you feel good. But it's crucial to show up when you don't feel like it. A workout when you don't feel like it does not improve you physically, but it reaffirms your identity. And this is can be easily proven by how everything is the catalytic enzyme for something else. Nothing comes out of the blue. For example, riots are rarely the result of a single event. Outrage compounds. It's a chain of microaggressions that so slowly multiply until they ultimately skip the scale, and then it spreads like wildfire. Atomic Habits gives the example, if assuming you're familiar with Fahrenheit, where freezing is 32 degrees, so if you place an ice cube on a table in a very cold room, and it is 25 degrees, and then they warm it up, and it's so cold you can see your breath, 25, 26, 26, 27, 27, 28, 28, 29. Now, all this time, you're watching the ice cube, and there is no difference whatsoever. However, 30, 31, no change. And then 31 to 32, then all of a sudden, the ice begins to melt. Seemingly, just a one-degree shift is no different than 25 to 26. But this one degree unlocked a huge change. Breakthrough moments are usually the result of previous actions that unleash a major change. And this pattern shows up everywhere. Cancer spends 80% cancer spends of its life undetected, and then it takes over the body in just a matter of months. Bamboo can be seen, cannot be seen for five years, as it's building an extensive root system underground. And then it shoots up 90 feet, 90 feet straight into the air in six weeks. In all compounding processes, the outcomes are delayed. It takes time until habits can break through that plateau of latent potential. So therefore, complaining about not achieving success after you work hard is like complaining about an ice cube not melting when you heated it from 25 to 31 degrees. Your action was not wasted. It was just being stored up. All of the action happens at 32 degrees. When you finally break through that threshold of latent potential, then the world will see it as an overnight success, and they can't see what went into it. And here I'd like to quote an interesting story. Uh, it's a long story just to get to a punchline, but uh, every Friday night, right now I'm recording to you during the pandemic. I'm not, uh, we're not getting out so much, but it used to be every Friday night, I would pray at the Kotel at the Western Wall here in Jerusalem. And we take guests from the Kotel from the Western Wall. We call them walnuts. And years ago, we brought back a couple from the wall. And these walnuts were not our typical. They were really grounded people and uh, very dignified. It was strange. They were not drifters. Uh, they were a couple in their middle ages, I would guess in their 50s. I had no way of knowing. I mean, they were very polite and courteous and interesting and obviously very knowledgeable. But when I walked them home afterwards to the hotel they were staying in, which also was a pretty fancy hotel, not where a, a drifter would stay, uh, and I became very friendly with this gentleman. And whenever I would travel to Los Angeles, which was about twice a year, I would always go visit him. And it turned out he was actually a billionaire. Not a millionaire, a billionaire. And, uh, 
he had properties and theaters and studios and he had this very large chain of clothing stores which is what initially made him his money very nice man and he had a great line and it was he was always giving business advice I think a little bit or a lot of it was wasted but this one I will never forget he said to me this gentleman passed away a number of years ago he said to me that every overnight success takes 20 years I've not forgotten that and that's very akin to what we're talking about it's somewhat equivalent or the human equivalent of geological pressure you take two tectonic plates that can grind against each other for thousands of years and then one day they rub against each other as they have so many times before but this time the pressure is too great and an earthquake erupts change can take years before it happens all at once mastery takes patience in atomic habits there's a quotation from a i guess it's a poster which hangs in the locker room of the san antonio spurs a very very famous nba uh, basketball team a quote from the very famous social reformer jacob reese and this is what it says when nothing seems to help i go and look at the stonecutter hammering away at his rock perhaps as much as a hundred times without so much as a crack showing in it at the hundred and first blow it will split in two and i know that it was not the last blow that did it but all that had gone before so what we want to do is first what you should do is rate your habits ask yourself does this behavior help me become the type of person i wish to be does this type of behavior cast a vote for for or against my desired identity habits which reinforce your desired identity are usually good those that conflict with your desired identity are bad and we've already had occasion to speak about how we want to ask ourselves the question which rabbi Tolushkin had mentioned that you have to analyze what is motivating my action is it my good conscience or my bad conscience or my calloused conscience is what i'm doing going to benefit is it for the sake of heaven or detrimental for the sake of heaven and if you can make that one analysis then you know which way you're heading and you can reassess what you're about to do so if you wish to habituate your habits and this process is known as automaticity it then becomes the default and that's exactly what Maimonides writes and he says I'm putting it in my own vernacular if you wish to give $100 to charity it would be preferable to give one to give 100 one dollar bills over one $100 bill because that habituates you doing it again and again and again gets you in the habit and makes it part of your nature it becomes the default or if I can give these usually don't always work but I want to give an example from squash that's a game that uh, people in America have no idea what it's about albeit in Commonwealth countries it's more common squash is often compared to racquetball or tennis squash players like myself find that insulting sometimes it's referred to as sportsman's chess because it requires a lot of strategy and always trying to be a step ahead because the ball goes technically faster than in any other sport over 100 miles an hour and the ball is dead meaning if you cannot anticipate where the ball is going to be going to go and you're not there it will not balance for you to get that chance to hit it back you have to be able to anticipate that so one of the hardest moves in squash is getting that backhand when you're served and it's coming in so fast it was always my achilles heel but over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times of returning a serve with my backhand it has now become habituated and i have a put away shot if i 
If I would have to think about it, there would be no time and I would lose. But now it's a matter of default. So, for example, if you wish to smile, so what you have to do is just make that the default. You get up in the morning, you smile. You see your parents, you smile. You see your spouse, you smile. The amount of times that you do something is more important than the number of time, pardon me, the, the amount of time is not half as important as the number of times. Because the more you do it, the more you habituate it. And this is not only fulfillment of Maimonides' rule, of doing it more and more and more is preferable over one great, ish, one great event, one great effort, is less important than many repeated efforts. But it's all fulfillment of the very famous concept of Rabbi Dessler, where I'm having a hard time trying to translate the term. I would call it the center point, or perhaps the point of friction. For example, there are certain noble things that are very hard for us to perform, like honoring our parents, avoiding slander, impeccable honesty. And then there are crimes that we would never do. Grand larceny, loan sharking, torture. So try and picture a bar. And on one side, we'll put all the hard things to do or make it a, a vertical bar. On top are the hard things honoring our parents. On the bottom are the grand larceny, torture, things we would never do. We're somewhere in the middle. That's our point of friction. And our job is to raise that center point, that point of friction, higher and higher. By way of analogy, if Germany is battling France, in the capitals in Paris and Berlin, there's calm. But at the battlefront, there's friction and tension, and there's war going on. So our center point is where the friction is. You want to do something good. You want to give that smile. So now it's a challenge for us. But if you get to do it again and again and again to the point that it becomes your default, then you've raised that center point higher and it's no longer a challenge. That is not what's challenging you. But fret not, sweat not. No matter how high you raise it, there'll always be things that we still have to work on to make it our nature and not something that we have to fight against each and every time. Many people think that what they lack is motivation, but often what they're lacking is clarity. There's a yawning chasm between saying, I will exercise 10 minutes before lunch, and saying, I will exercise when I have a chance. The latter, because it's amorphous and so general, you'll never get around to doing it. And here's a good point. I'll tell you a story that when I was maybe 17 years old, my great dream was to travel from America to Israel and study in yeshiva, but the ticket was expensive, the airfare. And then they had a plan in those days that if you buy a ticket six months in advance, the, f the price was very inexpensive. However, ay 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 I hardly know what I'm doing in six days, not to mention six weeks. How am I able, going to be able to plan for six weeks one specific date? And then my cousin brought to my attention that in Greenwich Village, they sell these tickets over the counter. Maybe it was under the counter. For those who are not familiar, Greenwich Village is a place, well, I'm not so sure about today, but back in the day, it was hippies, a lot of drugs, and uh, it was strange. And I remember going there to buy this ticket at the dress I was given, and people were going by in their skateboards, and they're going, <laughs> they were so high, they didn't know if they're going uptown, downtown, they were just, they were just traveling. I finally found a place, and I have the stub in one of my wallets somewhere. It was $151 from New York to Brussels, and in those days, an intra-European ticket was $100 to go anywhere in Europe. So in other words, to go from New York, Brussels, Tel Aviv would have cost me $251. That was within the budget. It was 
some very strange kind of airline I never heard of before, uh, airline with just one plane. Uh, but a plane is a plane. It would it would get me there. And uh, part of the deal was we had to go as a group. And the name of the group was Midtown Singers. Now, I'm a singer like I'm a ballerina dancer, but okay. Now, when I got the ticket, they told me, they gave me a phone number and said, call in advance to make sure the plane is leaving on time. The plane was supposed to leave on Sunday. I called on Thursday and they told me they can't find the plane. What? I mean, th this is not a contact lens. Did you ever see? I mean, you can't miss. How, how do you lose a plane? But they said they were looking on it. Called again on Friday. They're assiduously looking. They haven't yet found it. My gosh. Called on Sunday. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they found it. It was in Vietnam. What happened was is that American GIs had managed while they were doing their tour of service in Vietnam to impregnate many local women. And then the American government decided it would be only appropriate to bring these babies back to America. And it was called Operation Baby Lift. And this plane was involved in this project to bring the babies back to America. And they said the plane will be back in San Diego Monday morning and will leave for New York Monday night. But call in advance to be sure. Called again. They said, no, it'll be back. It'll probably be leaving on Tuesday. Called again on Wednesday. I'm starting to get nervous because I really didn't care if it left on a Sunday or a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. But once we're talking Thursday, Friday, that is a conflict with Shabbat. And you're flying into time. And once I'm, if, you know, the plane gets stuck somewhere, I get to Brussels Friday afternoon, I'm going to be in the Brussels airport all of Shabbat with nowhere to travel uh, and nowhere to go. And I can't get out of the airport. Not my idea of a eventful uh, trip. Okay, so then they called and they said, for sure, the plane is leaving Thursday morning. Because it was a group flight, we had to go and meet at a hotel in Manhattan, and then we would travel in a yellow bus to the airport. My father, of blessed memory, drove me to the hotel, <laughs> and we came inside. And in those days, the big thing was tie-dyed. Tie-dyed shirts, tie-dyed dungarees, tie-dyed beards. And we go into this hotel lobby. Everyone there is tie-dyed. Everyone is high. Uh, the big thing in luggage was obviously guitar cases. My father really had had enough. He said, okay, you're on your own. He wished me well. We get on the bus. We go to the airport. And the plane is delayed. Delayed, 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 delayed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Finally, finally, they announced, like 5, 6 o'clock at night, that they're going to begin boarding. Now, what I tried to do was something that you really can't do. I wanted to get into a prestigious yeshiva in Israel, and that meant uh, studying. And I was doing other things that summer. So I was trying to cram a lot of learning, a lot of Talmud study into this short time on the flight and in the airport. And I was, at that point, at least being pretty diligent. I had innocently relied on having getting on the plane, having a kosher meal, which I had ordered. I didn't bring food with me. So it's already a day which has lapsed. And I see that it's getting so late that I asked them to give me a seat next to the door. So this way, when a plane would land, I'm afraid it would be so tight for my connection to get uh, onto Tel Aviv. I said, give me a seat next to the door. Okay, it was a, a, there was only one door in this plane. I guess there must have been an uh, emergency exit in the back. I'm sitting in the front of the plane, and I'm, like I said before, getting pretty diligent, and I'm studying. It wasn't until we were airborne that I noticed that the fellow sitting next to me was uh, a person who was going to a missionary conference in Europe, and he was all excited he was going to be able to convert me on the flight. I'm not always crazy about these flights, but I shouldn't complain. 
It was on such a flight that I met Pastor Brogy, for which I'll forever be grateful and obliged. So he says to me, and this is my connection to what I was saying earlier, he said, we're the religion of love, and you're the religion of hate. I said, what? How are we a religion of hate? He said, we, our golden rule is, do unto your neighbors as you want done to yourself. And your golden rule is, don't do unto your neighbors as you don't want done to yourselves. In other words, you are negativistic. Now, to turn from negativistic into hateful, that's quite a yawning chasm and quite a leap. And I don't really consider it negativistic. I think really it's concretion. Because if you had a choice, what seems to make more sense? Be a good person or don't insult, don't hurt, don't offend, because you don't want to stunt yourself, don't do it to someone else. That seems to be much easier to connect to an idea like this. So we got into this argument and began to practice what you preach. And then, all of a sudden, like I told you, I was sitting at the front of the plane. The stewardess marched two boys, maybe eight and nine years old, real Americansky Yankee Doodles, to the front of the plane. Both of them were wearing shorts and polo shirts. And they had flat top haircuts, if you remember those. Those flat tops were so large, you could land the B-52 bomber on top of those flat tops. And these boys were crying their heads off. What happened was, in the back of the plane, their father who was a member of the American Armed Services stationed in Germany, had suffered a heart attack. So it's not to see their father dying, they brought the boys to the front of the plane. And because I was sitting right up front, I was able to hear everything that was going on, and the stewardess was saying, what are we to do? Because the wife of the man in the army, the father, the mother of these two boys, uh, said she refused to the plane. The plane had to make an emergency landing in Newfoundland. They had dropped fuel because the man had a heart attack. They're going to make an emergency landing to let him off. And the problem was that she refused to the plane because she wouldn't have enough money to get back home to Germany. And the stewardess said, what are we to do? And I, no credit to myself, simply being raised in a yeshiva kind of environment, instinctively got up, took my sick bag, and I went through the aisles. And I said, would you please give to this poor family that's suffering right now? And it was so interesting. People were pulling out money from, I, I can't show you in a podcast, but all over their clothing and undergarments. And uh, and every five aisles, the bag was bulging with money. I walked to the front of the plane. The stewardess is announced over the PA. We have 300 francs, 200 lira, 500 marks, $200, and everyone's applauding. And the whole plane, like we were high uh, topographically, but they were high anyways. And then this Harry Krishna pulled out his beat-up guitar and he composed a hymn. We're going to give, we're going to give, we're going to give, we're going to give. And the whole, plane, the whole plane is up dancing and singing. It was a telethon in the air. And every five rows, it filled up more money, more money, more money. And uh, anyways, thank God this lady was able to get off the plane. And I just hope this man had some kind of good recovery. And then I turned to my neighbor and I said again, what was that we were talking about? Oh, yeah, practice what you preach. But my point is, is that it's so much easier to listen to something if it's concrete. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be insulted. I don't want to be shamed, and therefore I shan't do it to someone else. So if you want to make a good habit, what you have to do is say, I'm going to not, I'm going to exercise, but at this time, at this place, at, then I will do it. That's concretion. And this, of course, will be continued in our upcoming episode. Please, God. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com 
you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com. 